Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello. Hey, Stephanie. Hello, Ken. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Is this still a good time? It is. It's perfect. Fantastic. Great. Um, our producers just said When I found out that I was hosting Babbage this week and talking about generative AI, I knew exactly who I needed to call. Great. I'm, here. I'm ready. Stephanie Gruner Buckley is a former journalist. I used to work with her at the Wall Street Journal more than 20 years ago. Now, she mainly works with consultancies and academics by producing reports and helping to write articles from their research. She's worried about the future. Uh, I guess it leaves me a little bit nervous. First, writers like me were hit by COVID, so a lot of our work dried up. And now suddenly we've got chat GPT. And while I find it's really fun to play with, I recognize that my employers at some point will see that they can use chat GPT to do about 80% of the work I'm now paid to do. I'll work for a company and the engagement may stretch out over a six-month period. During that time, I'm paid usually a set fee, uh, and that fee is usually reflects about a month's worth of work. In the chat GPT reality, <laughs> when much of what I do can be churned up in minutes by chat GPT, and then they hire me simply to edit and make sure that the report actually reads correctly, I'm probably down to a few days of editing. That's my fear. Do you remember the moment in which you realized, oh, shit. The truth is I, I do a lot of other things now to make up for this lack of work. I do a lot of writing workshops and training. Although I, I the other day, my big gasp moment was realizing that maybe that work also goes away because do you really need... I, I, I train young writers who do sustainability reports and the reality is they too may be replaced. So, yeah, the whole thing is pretty worrying. Let me press you a little bit further still. Is there a moment where you were just playing around with ChatGPT when, like, the penny dropped and you were like, oh, oh. So one of the other things that I do is I write a, a blog about parenting and technology. And the other day I put into ChatGPT, write a 600-word story in the voice of Stephanie Gruner Buckley about uh, challenges facing parents and keep sticking to uh, screen time limits. And strangely, what came up was a story that it didn't quite sound like me, but it was first person, which was bizarre. Um, and it had that kind of tone that I do. And my husband read it and said, it does kind of sound like you. <laughs> Many content creators like Stephanie are concerned about generative AI taking over some of what they would normally do. And the AI platforms like OpenAI's ChatGPT are constantly improving. Last month, we covered ChatGPT's upgrade from using GPT 3.5 to GPT 4, a bigger, more powerful system. And there are a flurry of competitors. Google launched its Bard chatbot, and Anthropic has a version called Claude. China's tech giants are also in the game, 
Alibaba, Baidu, Huawei, and SenseTime have all flaunted their large language models over the past month or so. And the things that people are doing with them seem to get more and more weird. This uh, German magazine, German uh, newspaper that published a story generated by a chatbot saying that it was an interview with the former racing driver Michael Schumacher, of course, who's still on life support, still incapacitated after his skiing accident. Apparently they just fed him. Now a fierce debate has been sparked in the world of photography after an artist entered a photo competition with an image generated by artificial intelligence. And one. A new AI machine is called ChatGPT. It's passed and it's topped some of America's most challenging exams, such as an MBA and the bar admission exam. As artificial intelligence continues to excel at tasks that were once the preserve of humans, it can be disconcerting. Is generative AI a threat to society? How worried should we really be? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm your host, Kenneth Couquier, standing in for Alloc over the next few weeks. The story of automation changing the world of work is by no means a new one. But the speed, the visibility, and the hype surrounding generative AI, since ChatGPT arrived six months ago, can seem alarming. Today, we'll find out exactly how the models that underlie these technologies work and what the risks really are. And what comes next? We'll explore how to create an environment in which generative AI and us mere mortals can peacefully coexist. The current edition of The Economist includes a richly reported package of articles on artificial intelligence. Our journalists have looked at generative AI from different angles to consider the technology's impact. It's a topic we've also covered in Babbage in a few previous episodes. To listen to them, go to economist.com slash AI pods with a capital A and a capital I. But today, I want to understand where we are in this new phase of the AI revolution and where we might be headed. So I've invited several of my colleagues to share their views. A good place to begin is with how the technology works and building on that, the opportunities and risks. To do this, I've brought together two fabulous minds on the issue, our global business and economics correspondent, Arjun Ramani. Hello, Arjun. Great to be here, Ken. Fantastic. And our science correspondent, Abby Bertix. Hello, Abby. Hi, Ken. Hey. So, Abby, let's start with you. You've been digging into the science and technology beneath generative AI, and we've covered large language models on the show before. Now, I know it's going to get a little bit complicated, but in general, how does this work? So the very first step, like if you're playing with ChatGPT, you type in your sentence, your question, and you hit enter. When it gets sent to the model, the model doesn't speak in words in English like we do. The model only understands numbers. So the very first step that needs to happen is the sentence that you use. Say, you ask it, what's your favorite ice cream? It has to first split up this text into chunks. We kind of do that naturally. We split it into words. The large language model underpinning ChatGPT, which right now is GPT-4, It'll split it into tokens. Tokens? What do you mean? So chunks of letters, which most often correspond to words, but sometimes they can be prefixes, suffixes, punctuation. And then it takes these tokens and it corresponds them to a number. Like ice 
could be 57. Cream could be 72. Those were just completely random. That's definitely not what it was. But we have words that get turned into numbers. And now we just have a list of numbers. The machine knows numbers. It can understand these numbers. So we have this long sequence of numbers. And the very first step where this is kind of where the learning comes in is to take each number and kind of embed it in this meaning space. Because when we're speaking English, words aren't just random. Like, ice is close to water, it's close to liquid, love is close to like, it's close to adore, it's like there's meaning to words. And so we need to give these random numbers a little bit of meaning, and we do that by embedding them in this meaning space. And you can kind of picture it on a 2D grid, where synonyms kind of cluster close to each other. And the machine learning model is able to figure this out by looking at which words are appearing when. And the general hypothesis is that words that appear in similar locations tend to have similar meanings. So this meaning space is where these words that have similar meanings are sort of located in nearby areas. What happens next? So after this step of word embedding, we kind of have all of these individual words that are represented as points in this like giant meaning space of randomness. And then this is actually where the bulk of the processing is going to happen. And the really important thing for large language models is something called attention. Attention. Attention is all you need. A- attention is all of these language models, what they've really used. So when we have these word embeddings, it kind of takes each word individually, but they're out of context. And attention is really the key that helps the model to link these words together and to understand these words in context and to make connections between them. So the math behind it is fairly complicated. Remember, the computer is dealing with numbers. And to go from these numbers to this meaning space through the attention, it's basically just a huge series of matrix multiplications and math. So how does attention contextualize these numbers representing words in the model? So attention, the way that it works when you're speaking an English sentence, like the keys in the cabinet are dirty. We automatically know that it's the keys that are dirty, not the cabinet that's dirty. We know how to form these associations and we know how to understand the sentence. The model doesn't. It it kind of has to learn what these connections are. And attention lets it know that when the model is processing keys, say, it should focus on dirty. And when it's focusing on cabinet, then dirty doesn't matter very much. So attention is kind of the way that the model builds in these connections and these associations, and it helps it learn to connect various concepts, various words, various sentences, kind of at varying levels of abstraction. And the dimension of it is sampling. Yeah, so once the words have been tokenized, they've been chunked up, they've been embedded in meaning space, once they've gone through the attention, connections have been drawn, it's not immediately at an answer. The goal of any language model is to predict the next word. So in training, it does that by covering up the end of the sentence and trying to predict the words that go there and then comparing it with the answer and kind of adjusting the weights afterwards. But when it's just answering a question, like when you use ChatGPT, it's trying to generate the next word. And after it gets through attention, it has, rather than the golden answer of what word is next, for each of the words in its little dictionary, it has a probability of that word going next. And then it chooses a word from those words based on those probabilities. It doesn't always choose the word with the highest probability, which is why you might ask ChatGPT the same question twice and you'll get two different answers. But the creativity and like the variability of its response in this sampling 
can be adjusted based on what the user wants. Do they want it to be more creative? Do they want it to be more certain and deterministic? But it's not just here's a word. You have to kind of roll your word dice according to the probabilities listed out that came from the attention. And then you kind of continue on and you feed and you get the next word and then the next word and then the next word and you sample word at a time. And as you pointed out, sometimes what looks like a wrong answer isn't totally wrong. Like, I love ice cream. I love ice hockey. Yeah. I mean, sometimes even when we're speaking just now, we have a choice. Each new word, we we kind of have to sample from our internal distributions about what's coming next. And like during this training phase, say it's given the sentence, I love ice blank, and its goal is to predict the next word. I love ice hockey. I love ice cream. Those are both two really good answers. But if it says like, I love ice is, that's probably a really bad answer. So it kind of uses how good its answer was and it adjusts them slightly in order to make a better prediction next time around. Arjun, why have the large language models been so successful? What's going on underneath the hood that makes them so good now that they weren't quite as good or capable in the past? Yeah, so there's several parts to it. I mean, the first thing I'd say is we've just had an explosion in the amount of data and computational power available to train these models. And so, so far, bigger really has been better. But I think there's some other stuff on top of that. So one of the reasons why OpenAI, their models, GPT-3 and and GPT-4, and then, of course, the, the chat versions of them have been so successful is specifically what data they use. You might wonder, you know, why is there a competitive advantage here if all it is is just pounding money into it? Shouldn't Google be as good as OpenAI? But one reason why maybe there's a little bit of a difference is which data you use is really critical. They don't tell you in their papers what training data they use, what data they don't include in the models. And so data quality matters a lot. Another aspect of this is called reinforcement learning from human feedback. And that's how ChatGPT was able to sound so conversationally realistic. And the basic idea is when you're having a conversation with the model, they have a lot of people they call labelers, and they'll basically have conversations with the model, and they'll give feedback to the model on whether its output in response to various prompts is realistic, whether it's safe, whether it kind of gets to the sense of what they're actually asking. And then the weights of the model that Abby talked about earlier can then be updated based on that feedback. And so you can then train the model to be more and more realistic over time. And so I think that's one of the key differentiators between these various models is how much reinforcement learning from human feedback they've done, how good have they built out their data pipelines for collecting that type of feedback. Now, if they're all using all of the the known text that's around and then they curate it so that it's the high quality stuff and then they give it some feedback, it sounds like they're reaching a plateau because there's not going to be any more data to find and you're going to be sort of bespoke curating. Abby, are we reaching a limit to how good these models are going to evolve in the short term? I mean, I guess that's an empirical question. We'll figure that out. As it currently stands, GPT-3, GPT-4, they were kind of trained on the entire internet. You can't really get much bigger than the internet. Um, There's a other research paper that suggested that we might run out of text data to train on by 2026. I guess there's a question of whether you could use these large language models to generate more text in order to train on them, but that leads to really tricky and interesting, I guess, research questions. It, it kind of sounds like a Ponzi scheme a little bit, to be honest. <laughs> so uh, th- there is a question of whether you can scale this, which is where the add-on algorithms, like what Arjun was talking about, the reinforcement learning with human feedback, become incredibly important. And also there's a question of whether you need to get a whole lot better. 
Arjun, in this week's issue of The Economist, you reported on how AI can go wrong. What is it that researchers are most worried about? So there, there are several problems that researchers are worried about. For example, people are worried about the risk of misinformation increasing. There's a risk of bias in these models, and because we don't understand them, we might not even know that they're making decisions, for example, in hiring algorithms or recommender systems on social media, and so on and so forth. There's another flavor of harms that some researchers term the alignment problem, which is basically when we develop models and in the process of achieving some type of goal, they might act against what humans' interests are as a kind of intermediate step. So I think the canonical example people give of this is the paperclip maximizer. This idea that you tell a model who's perhaps connected to a bunch of industrial factories and has connections to the electricity grid and the internet and so forth, and you ask the model, hey, I want to build a bunch of paperclips. Can you maximize paperclip production in this factory? And in order to do this, the model hacks into the world's electricity grids and energy sources and causes some kind of catastrophic problem. And, you know, this sounds a bit outlandish. And to be honest, it kind of is, because why would we connect the model to something like that if there is such a risk? But um, the way in which you might get to such a world or that type of flavor of problem is if models saw some kind of accelerating rate of progress that was faster than the rate at which society could adapt and regulate them. And for some parts of artificial intelligence, you can get into what are called self-improvement loops. So basically, you have a machine learning model, and you tell the large language model, can you improve the efficiency of the algorithm used to create yourself? And then it writes down another computer program, same level of capability, same power, but more efficiently using less energy using less data. And then you could tell that model, write down another model with a more efficient algorithm. And you can put this all in a loop so it does it itself without any human supervision. Again, seems a little unrealistic, but maybe we're getting closer to something that is more plausible in the sense of already GPT-4 can write down working computer programs. What if a large language model could write down another large language model and then you know, improves over time. Turtles all the way down. Yeah. Okay, so what can we do about these risks? You've already talked about human reinforcement learning. What else are researchers who build these models doing to mitigate the risks? Yeah, so besides reinforcement learning from human feedback, which I think is the main technique that's been used for aligning these models, so to speak, or to making them not say crazy things, you know, the other main thing is what's called red teaming. And so the idea of this is kind of an idea taken from wargaming. Basically, you know, you take a model and you test it. You put in a bunch of strange scenarios. You ask it to do bad things that you wouldn't want it to do in the real world. And you see, can you get past its defenses? Was the reinforcement learning that you did to make it safe, was it good enough? And the red team has worked reasonably well with GPT-4 as far as we know. You know, there haven't been super high-profile incidents of extremely bad things happening. And the question is, can these two techniques that I mentioned, plus the other stuff these companies are doing, will that be all we need as models get bigger and better and more powerful into the future? And I think that's an open question. I'm not very optimistic about that. I think one thing that's kind of concerning is actually an organization called the Alignment Research Center. They were doing their red teaming. They tried to get GPT-4 passed a CAPTCHA to enter a site. So it asked a TaskRabbit to click on the CAPTCHA for it. But then the TaskRabbit person asked, you know, why couldn't you do it yourself? And the model said, oh, I'm visually impaired, so I need someone to do it for me. And then it was able to successfully get past it. So clearly these models, you know, it doesn't necessarily know what the concept of deception is, but that doesn't matter. What matters is it's going to find a way to achieve its goals. And unless you've specified all the ways in which it shouldn't do bad things in the process, you, you can't necessarily rule out that it won't. 
Arjun, Abby, before I let you go, tell me about a recent article that you read in The Economist that you particularly liked that you'd want to give a shout out to. I really liked the recent essay on AI. It touched on like Freudian sense of consciousness. It was really like a sweeping sense of how we should even be thinking about these large language models. Arjun. So our fantastic industry editor, Simon Wright, has penned a special report on the car industry, which I highly recommend. And there's a chapter on autonomous vehicles and why we still haven't gotten them, but why he's optimistic they will slowly but eventually end up in our lives. But the whole report is about the broad swat of the car industry, including geopolitics, the technology, so on and so forth. Fantastic. Arjun Abbey, thank you so much. Thank you, Ken. Thanks. This has been delightful. So to read both Arjun and Abby's fantastic articles on generative AI, as well as the articles they gave a shout out to, go to economist.com. And on the online version of Abby's piece explaining how large language models work, there's even an interactive demonstration of that complex process that we've just heard about. Definitely go and check it out. If you're a subscriber, thank you. If you're not yet a subscriber, please consider becoming one. You can get your first month free. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. It's clear from talking to Abby and Arjun that there are risks that need to be managed as generative AI becomes more visible and more useful in everyday life. But are these models being taken up as rapidly and widely as some believe? How worried should knowledge workers be, people like Stephanie, who we heard at the start of the show? Of course, I needn't worry, being a washed-up podcast celebrity, but what about my brilliant producer who feeds me all of my lines word for word? To put generative AI into this context, I'm joined by Callum Williams, The Economist's senior economics writer. Now, Callum, I know your internet at home has just gone down, which isn't exactly ideal for recording a podcast on cutting-edge technology, but you've scrambled to a local cafe. It's a little bit noisy, but that's fine. I appreciate the effort. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Ken. Good to talk. Callum, are businesses currently using generative AI? Do you have a feeling like it's actually widespread or not? So the data from America suggests that roughly like 8 to 10% of businesses in the US are using AI of some sort, like the kind of earlier versions. In terms of generative AI, companies are keen on like boasting about how they are using it. So there's some legal firms and stuff that say they're now using it for various things. In practice, the amount of use in the economy right now is like super limited. And mainly it's to do with trial applications and proof of concept. So it's, it's not very widespread at the moment. What kind of impact do you think it may have on professional jobs? Well, that is a big question. So there's a lot of research coming out about this at the moment. Basically, the way it works is they look at jobs and they break down jobs into different tasks. Most people have jobs that are composed of lots of different sorts of tasks. And then the researchers basically say, what share of those tasks can AI do? And so where the literature is at the moment is that it's like a sizable chunk of tasks that can be done. And so you're looking at roughly 80% of US employment that is affected in some way by AI. That does not mean 80% of jobs are forecast to disappear. It means that 80% of jobs are forecast to change. Okay, now change can be good and bad. When you gave that headline figure of 80%, I thought to myself, well, for electricity, it's hard to imagine that it's not 100% of jobs that have been affected by electricity. And when it comes to computing... Probably most jobs have been affected by computing. So often what we're doing is we're opening up a door to an entirely new ways of work that can create more value. 
So what does your economic intuition tell you about generative AI? Is this going to look like the mechanical looms of the early 1800s, which is going to eviscerate artisanal jobs, and it's going to be a big problem for people in that transition? Or do you think it's going to be a little bit more like the internet, which simply opened up the door to lots of new jobs and professions, even if certain ones, like travel agents, couldn't exist anymore? If you had to guess, it's probably going to be the second one. I mean, generally speaking, technologies tend to be adopted quite slowly. And so you only can see the really big impacts if you look over a fairly long period of time across different countries. A really good example of this would be when they started to bring in automated telephone systems. So obviously, as everyone knows, the way it used to work when you wanted to call someone was that someone physically had to like connect your number to someone else's number. And now, of course, you don't do that. But the process of going from manual to automatic phones took many, many, many decades. The technology to connect a phone automatically existed by the beginning of the 20th century. But it, even by the 70s, there were some people that were still working in those jobs, like a very small number, admittedly, but there still were some people working in those jobs. Okay, let me press you on this for a second. Aren't digital jobs somehow qualitatively different? Just the fact that switching costs are much faster than they were in an offline and analog world, that your analogy isn't quite appropriate? Uh, so I think that's right. And certainly if you look at computers, the spread of computers was faster than automated telephones. And there's a lot of evidence that AI is even faster than computers because, you know, famously, ChatGPT has, you know, reached 100 million users quicker than any other product in the history of the world. So, yeah, absolutely. But I think there's a distinction between people using it in a casual way, which has happened very quickly, and it becoming really integral to the production processes of large companies that employ large numbers of people. Basically, big companies move slowly. There are some exceptions, of course. But yes, I agree. It won't be 90 years like with the automated telephones, but I also really don't think it will happen so fast that, you know, from one day to the next or even from one month from one year to the next, people are going to go from being employed to unemployed. So far in this conversation, we have to accept that what we're referring to is technology in the abstract. But in this instance, what we're specifically looking at from an economic standpoint is the idea that written material will fall to near zero in cost. Now, we can quibble about the quality, and we can quibble about whether we need a prompt engineer to query the systems on one end, and a validator to make sure it's not hallucinating in the middle, and an editor to make sure it reads correctly at the end. All of those pieces are going to come into place. But earlier in the podcast, we spoke to someone who writes reports for a consultancy and said her job, which normally will take a month or two, is going to shrink down to just a few days. And that person expects her income to shrink correspondingly. So what do you say to that? What are the economic consequences of this particular technology that leads the creation of content to fall to near zero cost? Well, I don't think... A problem we have in the world today is that there's insufficient content. There are already, to be honest, far too many <laughs> reports and pieces of research and stuff that are being published. I mean, there's that famous World Bank study that looked at how many people actually read World Bank reports. And there were loads of reports where like three people read them or whatever it may have been. And so I think the value that consultants truly add is not in the text that they produce for a report is the ability to be able to deliver the main messages to the clients, to be able to talk to the client and answer questions that the client may have. But I think it's another thing that's really important to bear in mind, which is that having infinite amounts of texts around could actually end up being incredibly irritating and a real productivity sap. So for example, if you imagine that you go to the shop 
and you get a ham sandwich. Ham sandwich costs you $3. You don't like the ham sandwich. You can just on the spot file a lawsuit against the guy who sold you the ham sandwich. It costs you nothing to do so. You can produce a 10,000 word lawsuit against the poor proprietor of the sandwich shop and insist that you get your money back. Now, obviously, no one's going to do that, but you can certainly imagine a world where the cost of litigation falls to zero. And so for loads of things like planning applications, uh, objections to takeovers, all that kind of stuff, the system could become very, very slow. So more text is definitely not necessarily a good thing. So what about the effect on wages? Of course, the fancy consultant is selling his or her brain power. But what about the person who's actually writing the report, who's a little bit lower down on the food chain? What about the wages that these people can get? Do you think that generative AI will depress white-collar wages? Certainly, the evidence suggests that there are certain jobs that are sort of white-collar jobs, but also require some cognitive skills that will essentially be replaced by AI. What the history shows is that technologies do replace jobs. That's definitely true. And that goes all the way back to the weavers of the early industrial revolution. So no one's kind of making the point that no jobs will ever disappear from the economy as it is. But I think you can have faith that the economy will continue to create new types of jobs, which today are frankly impossible to imagine. And so that makes it scary because you can, you can imagine what disappears, but it's hard to imagine what appears. But I think you can have faith. Does it worry you that if the cost of the production of written or any form of creative content falls to near zero, that we're going to have so much more of it that the abundance will create a harm because human cognition, being what it is, can only consume a given amount of it. And we already have, as you noted before, a lot in which we may be swamped with paperwork and lawsuits. So might a market failure take place in which the excess of content creates these pathologies and difficulties that society's not expecting? I think that's definitely a strong possibility. I mean, I tried to get to that with this notion that if you're a busybody, if you're someone who likes suing people, if you're someone who likes complaining, AI is great because you can basically generate infinite number of complaints and gum up the system. And that is totally true for any kind of written communication. So quite what the behavioral response of people is to that surfeit of information is very hard to predict. But I definitely agree, and I would strongly push back the notion that low cost of producing information is productivity enhancing for a society as a whole. I think that is not true. Callum, thank you so much. Thanks, Ken. We live in a world in which we usually think more is better and cheaper is better. And in an offline age, that was true. More land, more money. Cheaper food, cheaper housing. But the great insight of the modern age, expressed by the Nobel-winning economist Herbert Simon in the 1970s, was that information has an unseen cost. In his words, what information consumes is the attention of its recipients. Hence, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention and a need to allocate that attention efficiently. In other words, just because we produce more content doesn't mean we can consume more, and finding the relevant and high-quality material becomes much, much harder. By analogy, in the world of atoms, the mechanical loom gave us more fabric at low cost, and society benefited. But in the world of bits, generative AI might give us more content at low cost, and society may suffer. After all, such pathologies exist in other spheres. We expected social media to bring people together, and instead, it's tearing us apart. What it all means for jobs is an open question. 
Writers may need to retrain as prompt engineers, fact-checkers, and editors, and may need to work twice as much for half the pay. All of this potential disruption is why we need to think about how the technology will be deployed. Next, The Economist Deputy Editor will help us understand how to create an environment that embraces both innovation and regulation to ensure that our future with artificial intelligence is beneficial. That's coming up. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Today on Babbage, we're casting a critical eye on the generative AI revolution and trying to understand what technologies like ChatGPT mean for us as humans. If I'm looking for crystal clear guidance on how to put all of what we've learned so far together, there's only one more person I need to talk to, and that is Tom Standage, the Economist deputy editor and all-round tech guru. Tom, where are we in this revolution? Generative AI has boomed onto the scene. Why is that? Two big things have happened here. One is that the technology's got a lot better with GPT-3 and 3.5 and ChatGPT and now GPT-4. And the other is that the technology's become a lot more visible. And I think that's just as important, if not more important, in driving the way people think about it today. The fact that ChatGPT was deployed as a chatbot that literally anyone could just go and play with, and 100 million people very quickly did, I think that has really been the iPhone moment because it really has made AI much more accessible to lots of people. It means that you're seeing it popping up in all sorts of places, all sorts of people are using it for all sorts of unexpected things. And so that's what's given us this sudden sense of acceleration. Yeah, without a doubt. The interface counts for a lot. Because once people can easily just click open a web browser, they can do things that they couldn't do otherwise. So the question then becomes, do you think we're always going to be using a text box? Or do you think we'll be interacting with these generative AI systems in other ways? Well, I think the chatbot model is very versatile and lets you play with it very easily. But yes, we're already starting to see this technology integrated into other things. I mean, actually, when Gmail offers to finish your sentence for you, it's the same technology, and that's been there for quite a while. But we're now seeing Microsoft and Google and others saying we're going to incorporate this technology into our mainstream productivity product. So being GPT or whatever the Microsoft version of it is called can help you make a PowerPoint presentation about things. I was editing something in Google Docs the other day, and it offered me an AI powered summary of the document. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll give it a try. It was absolutely terrible, I have to say. So, you know, obviously there's quite a lot of room for improvement here. But I think the idea is that this technology will be baked in in lots of places. So I think it's going to be this sort of threading of this capability into other products that's actually going to be the most significant. Now, on the podcast a few months ago, Alloc interviewed a humanoid robot, which could make gestures and facial expressions, and was powered by GPT-3. Is that the future? 
Well, there is a school of thought that says that one of the most important ways to make this technology better is to put it into robots and to put it into systems that can interact with the world. And there's a sort of philosophical reason that underpins this, which is what's called the symbol grounding problem. And this is that we're kind of assuming that when a system can talk about the world as fluently and coherently as ChatGPT, for example, can, that it must actually know about the world. And this is something that philosophers and computer scientists are debating very intensively at the moment. And one of the things that people say is, well, if you train these systems on more than just words, training these models with robot sensor data and with images and with video is a way to make them understand the world better and therefore hallucinate less than they do now. So I think this is one of the many things that people are going to be trying to do with LLMs to make them more powerful and more accurate and enable them to do cool things. Google's actually done this. It's put a large language model into a, a robot system called Palm E. It's really quite impressive what that thing does. You can say, fetch me the rice crackers from the drawer and the robot goes over to the drawer and picks up the rice crackers and you can ask it to solve puzzles where you've got blocks of different colours on a table and you say push all the red blocks over to my coffee cup and it actually does it. So I think that's quite impressive. It is also of course exactly the scenario that people start to worry you know this is how the robots go bad and, and take over the world. As soon as you put this technology inside a robot that can move around we're all doomed. So clearly when you connect these systems to physical systems that can actually intervene in the world you do open up a whole load of new safety concerns that do have to be taken seriously. Some technologists have written a letter calling for a six-month pause in the development of large language models like GPT, and it's gotten a lot of attention. An open letter signed by Elon Musk is calling for a pause on the development of more powerful artificial intelligence systems, citing risks to society and humanity. Musk's Tom, what do you think about that? Yeah, I just I have a number of reasons that I'm sceptical. I don't think it's practical. I don't think you could enforce it. It has this very simplistic idea that as long as you don't make anything bigger than GPT-4, then everything's fine or something. That seems very arbitrary. There's a lot of hidden agendas going on. Some of the people who signed it, Elon Musk in particular, he's starting his own startup. He's just bought a massive pile of GPUs and he's hiring people. So it would suit him down to the ground if everybody paused for six months while he gets his startup going. So you have to take that with a pinch of salt. And the letter itself comes from the Future of Humanity Institute, which is primarily funded by Musk. If you think these systems are big and scary and we're worried about them, the answer is not to not do any more research. I mean, when you're worried about the safety of something, surely what you need to do is do more research into how it works and how you can make it safe. So yeah, I'm not a fan of the six-month pause, and I think it was kind of a stunt. And then the other point is that this is a kind of hype. So you can hype up the capabilities of AI and say how brilliant it is and we'll all have self-driving cars tomorrow, but saying that it's terrible and evil and we need to worry about it and it could wipe us all out is also a kind of dark side of the hype. It's the sort of the flip side of that. And it's interesting that Elon Musk, on the one hand, sells products where he talks up the good aspects and the capabilities of AI, in fact, talks them up too far with his self-driving cars that aren't really self-driving yet. But he's also had a long track record of worrying about this. And in a sense, they both serve his purposes because they both give the impression to the public at large that this is a very powerful technology, which suits him when he wants to sell it to you. So it all adds up to me being quite sceptical. So how should we worry wisely about AI? Well, I think we need to kind of sift 
the reasons to be really worried, how worried should we be about each of them, but also we need to treat them one at a time. So there's this question about immediate risk of harm from AI now through bias and discrimination and you know other things that you've talked about on this show before. That is much more of a concern than the other things that are raised, one of which is the idea that the robots are going to take all the jobs. There's no evidence so far that they are. And in fact, the history of automation is that machines make people more productive by automating some parts of jobs, some tasks, but that actually increases demand for people to do the other bits that only humans can do. And this is what we seen time and time again and I think it's what we're going to see with AI but even if it isn't there's certainly no evidence in the employment figures that people are out of work because of this we have very very tight labour markets and in fact in countries like Britain where we've got ageing shrinking populations and growing dependency ratios we actually need a big jump in productivity if we're not all going to get poorer and if we're all not going to have to work till we're 90 so I think actually a dose of automation to improve productivity I hope that's something that people will come round to seeing as a plus and then of course we need to think about the AI's wiping out humanity. And I think one of the really interesting things that has come out of the reporting that we did for this package was it turns out in every field, not just AI, people in that industry always overestimate the likelihood of big things happening In other words, they like the idea that their industry is the most important industry or their field is the most important field and will have a big bearing on the future of humanity. That's what you would expect. Well, that's exactly right. And of course, we all know that really the most important industry in terms of the future of humanity is journalism. Well, obviously, obviously, that's what we need. We need a sustainable, vibrant journalism industry, etc., etc., etc. So yes. Now, Tom, before I let you go, the final question is going to be, well, how do we regulate this wisely? What should we do in terms of a toolkit to make sure that it serves human ends? I think the way to think clearly about regulation of AI is to kind of look at the options. One option is to do nothing, which is roughly what Britain and America are doing. So Britain's explicit goal is let's try to regulate this using existing laws and existing regulators. And you can sort of see why. If it's illegal to discriminate against people when hiring, then it's also illegal to do it if you discriminate against them using an AI. So you can sort of see the argument for that. But that said, big important technologies in the past have required new regulation. So I think this is going to require some kind of new regulation. If you then look at what Europe is doing, Europe is saying, well, we don't need a new regulator. We need new rules that are then enforced by local regulators in different ways. And they have this quite complicated system where they chop up all different systems into different degrees of risk. And then depending on how much risk there is, you have to report more sort of transparency and accountability data and so on. And then some kinds of uses of AI are banned altogether. And then you have the most extreme forms of this and what the Chinese are doing, where they're saying, you have to register these systems with the central government and they have to be entirely accurate. I'm not sure quite sure how you're going to do that. Of course, they have to espouse socialist values. That's also going to be quite tricky with these LLMs. But I think that's not so much a safety argument in China's case as a political argument, which is obviously they want to control the output of these systems, but they also want the country to do well in AI. And then people talk further ahead. They talk about the need for international things like the Non-Proliferation Treaty for Nuclear Weapons or something like the IAEA. You could have these sort of intergovernmental bodies. So that would be the top end of the spectrum in regulatory terms. And I look at all of this and I think, well, Britain and America's approach is too little. You need to do something. But I don't think you need to go all the way to the let's have an IEA for... AI. You want to end up somewhere in the middle. And I think you also need to start building foundations so that if we decide we do need to move up the scale of regulation, if we do need an AI-specific regulator like we do for medicine or communications or aviation, then we're in a position to add that. So I'm sort of saying regulate lightly now, so a bit more lightly than the EU, but with an expectation that you may have to turn up the dial later as this technology matures and we understand more about it. 
It sounds like what you're suggesting is a bit of a shift from the common narrative of two decades ago in which we felt that there was an infant industry called the internet and we needed to have a sort of hands-off approach in order for it to flourish so that innovation wasn't sort of hobbled. But here you're almost getting rid of that shibboleth and allowing those first baby steps because you feel like it's worthwhile and the slippery slope argument doesn't hold water anymore when we've seen all the pathologies of the internet and social media. Is that a fair characterization? Well, no, because I think this is an industry, if you like. This is a field that's as old as the internet. In fact, you could argue that it's older. People started talking about this. Well, you know, when did people start talking about AI? I mean, it goes back to the Greek myths Aristotle, and so on. But yeah. I, yeah, exactly. So there's lots of ways you can do it. But I don't think this is baby steps. I think this is an industry that is just starting to work. We can have regulation and also still have innovation. So we still get new drugs. We still have new airplanes. We still have new cars. And in fact, if you want to go and develop a new kind of car in your backyard, you can do it. It's only when you start trying to drive it on public roads or sell it to other people that the regulators will show up and go, hang on a sec. And I think that's the way it should be. So I think this doesn't constrain research, but it does constrain the way that these technologies are deployed and the fact that they can potentially, even now and even before we worry about existential risk, they, they can have negative effects for, for privacy, they can be discriminatory, and there are other problems right now. And so I think we need to recognize that. Tom, have you ever used GPT for your writing? Uh, I've tried to use it as a sounding board for ideas. But the problem with GPT, the problem with all these systems, is they give you the median view of the internet. And the median view of the internet is not very exciting. If you just want sort of some waffle to go in a brochure, then fine. But the job of journalists is to seek out new facts that do not already exist on the internet and to have interesting opinions about them. And those are two things that these systems are currently rubbish at. Do you think they'll always be rubbish at it? Do you think it'll improve? I think they could get better. I don't know whether they'll do the going out and digging up new facts part of it, and their opinions may get more interesting. Who knows? But I'm reminded of what a former editor of The Economist, Bill Emmett, said a while ago. He said, what we sell is basically your collective brain power. And I think that's still true. Well, I apologize to all of our listeners that my brain power is included in that, but glad that yours is, Tom. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ken. To end where we began, my friend Stephanie may not have to worry so much about AI stealing her job. After all, the art of journalism and writing and being a podcast host is to prompt good responses from those smarter than yourself, verify the information, and edit the output. These are skills all creative people do in one form or another in every medium and also in every profession. But the transition from one era and set of practices to another may be anything but smooth. Our thanks to Stephanie Gruner-Buckley and to The Economist Abby Vertix, Arjun Ramani, Callum Williams, and Tom Standage. And of course, to you. Thank you for listening to Babbage. Don't forget that you can read The Economist's special issue on generative AI in print, online, or on our app. Finally, if you've made it this far, then you are probably a super nerd. So why not join us on the Babbage team? That's right, we're hiring for an assistant producer to work on the show. You can find the job description in the show notes for this episode and apply by May 15th. Babbage is produced not yet by you, but by the amazing Jason Hoskin, not relying on GPT, with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast, not relying on generative AI, yet. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell, Information, words, and mixing by ChatGPT. Just kidding. 
I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, where I better learn to rely on AI if my natural stuff isn't good enough, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.